Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. the one and only William Zappa. He is one of our finest actors with a career spanning four decades across film and television as well as the stage. He's an award-winning actor having played major roles for STC, Melbourne Theatre Company, Bell Shakespeare Ensemble, Belvoir State Theatre of South Australia and Griffin. Some standout roles include Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. He's award-winning 13 characters in Bell Shakespeare's government inspector Anthony in Anthony and Cleopatra Max in rock and roll and Edward Danson in gift of the Gorgon there's so many roles I can't list them all outside of these he also won two awards for his portrayal of Thenardia in Les Miserables the role which inspired him to write Winter's Discontent his critically acclaimed one-man show he also wrote The Greening of Grace and toured his adaptation of Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. What a feat. Please welcome William Zappa. Hello. Thanks, Regina. So, what a life on the stage. But before we get into uh, what you're doing now and how you got to where you are, I'm going to take that Aristotle's, you know, give me a child at seven and I'll show you the man. What was life like for you as a child? I know you grew up in, in England, is that right? Between England and Greece. My mother's Greek and Zappa is my mother's name. But um, yes, yeah, so born in England, my parents separated when I was eight. Uh, Mum went back to Greece with the two youngest children, my sister Marilena and my brother Stephen, and left, I know that sounds a bit harsh, left Tony and I, my next uh, younger brother in England, um, with my father and grandparents. It was, I guess that was sort of when it all started, although one of my earliest memories, uh, I think I must have been about about six years old, and we were moving house, and I was standing on a chair in the living room while everybody was moving furniture and boxes and stuff, and uh, I was standing on a chair singing. So that's sort of my earliest uh, memory of entertaining, let's put it that way. I wonder what that song was, if you remember. I think it might have been a Greek song. Ah. Because uh, I I know that my mum and dad, you know, in those days were very much in love. And uh, I I have a memory of a song, which um, I still know the first couple of lines, I think. Yirise. Se perimeno irise, micrula mucopella, ella, ella, ella. Stay a while, stay a while, my my little girl, my little one, stay a while, something like that. Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> then um, when I think it was about nine or ten, one of my cousins uh, used to go to a dancing school and they needed some people for their uh, Christmas pantomime and I volunteered and Mm -hmm. I was pushed into it by my grandmother I guess 
And uh, so, yes, I did uh, my first stint on stage at about the age of nine. And I have to say, the thing that really got me hooked, I guess, was the fact that uh, I made lots of people laugh. Yes, that was something very, very, uh, very pleasant. But the next big step was when I went to high school and King John's secondary mod, as it used to be called, secondary modern uh, in Hadley in Essex. And um, the school had a really fantastic drama department. So that's really where it really got started, um, doing plays at school. So that set me off on this desire. And I guess... Uh, I was about 15 and uh, getting ready for all of the uh, exams, the A-levels and O-levels, and uh, I didn't want to do them, basically. I think (laughs) I sort of got a bit scared of sitting exams and I wanted to go to college and do drama. So I dropped out of school, Wow! waited for about six months and went to South End College of technology majoring in drama then all the exams were coming up again and (laughs) (laughs) for some reason I don't know I really uh, I just sort of wanted to avoid them and I saw an ad in the theatre magazine called The Stage advertising for a student acting ASM assistant stage manager at the Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury and I applied for the job I got interviewed and I got the job. So oh. I left college before all of those exams as well. So <laughs> I've managed to get through life without any qualifications, <laughs> I guess. And the student acting SM, I used to describe it as the back end of a dog's body. <laughs> and the student part means that, uh, or meant that they didn't have to pay you very much. Oh. In fact, I think I got paid. Um, well, I know I got paid £2.50 shillings a week. My rent was £2.50 shillings. My dad paid my rent for me. <laughs> and for about a year and a half there, I was doing stage management duties, lots of small walk-on roles in plays and so on. One of the things that I, <laughs> I have to say, uh, I, I do smile about when I remember it, one of the jobs that I had to do at the end of this was fortnightly rep. We uh, changed plays every two weeks. And one of the things that happened on a Saturday night at the end of the two week run, uh, the audience would leave, the actors would be getting going home, but all the stage management and crew, we would take the set down and put up the new one for the next play. And one of my jobs, mm-hmm. this was a way of um, a way of showing just how frugal we had to be. One of my jobs was collecting nails <gasps> out of the set really? as it was being uh, taken apart. Wow. And um, in the case of bent ones, I had to straighten oh, them. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually remember doing that so clearly. And I also remember being so tired at three o'clock in the morning, um, straightening just nails. falling asleep with a hammer in my hand. <laughs> and waking up in the green room a couple of hours later. Somebody had moved me there. Oh, wow. Fantastic. What a memory. Poignant. It got to the stage where I 
what happened was I basically couldn't afford to uh, live anymore because my rent went up. Mm. I spent another couple of months there and uh, applied for a job at the Bristol Old Vic as uh, an acting ASM. So the student part was dropped. Great. I think I got paid around £10 or something <laughs> like that. And I was there in Bristol for a while and got invited back to the Marlowe Theatre to play uh, Jim Hawkins in um, uh, Treasure Island. Oh. So that was my first sort of big role and back as an actor in the theatre that I started with. So that was all quite lovely. And the director of the company at the Marlowe Theatre was a woman called Anne Stutfield. And um, Anne said to me one day, you've got to go to drama school. Basically, because I used okay. to talk like this most of the time, didn't I? Because of where I was from in England. And so I, um, I, I applied. Well, she, I, she actually, I, I, I have a vague memory of her saying, you know, you've got to go to drama school. You've got to learn to talk in other ways. So I applied to go to drama school and um, to Central. Mm-hmm. I could only afford to apply to one, and fortunately, I got in. I spent uh, well my first year. Yeah. So we're talking 1968 now, and uh, I have to say I was uh, oh, a bit of a rascal. Uh, I was. <laughs> I smoked quite a bit of dope oh. in those days, and I remember <laughs> um, we used to have a thing called animal studies where we'd go off to the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> once a week for a term and study animal movement. Love it, yeah. And we'd go back to the school and we would spend once a week practising our animals. And the idea was that over over the term you'd work on two or three animals and then you would choose one to uh, present. Oh, what did you choose? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was, uh, yes, Basically, I chose to do a spider. Oh, great. Look, I, I I was being really arrogant and very lazy. I was going to say, because are there many spiders at the zoo? <laughs> no. And my spider was based on um, a memory of childhood where oh. um, in England we used to only have a bath once a week. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that would happen, I, I can see it even as I'm telling you now, I'd walk in for my Sunday night bath and there'd be a spider in the bath. And I would turn the hot water on and let it run till it got hot. Then I'd put the plug in and I would watch the spider sensing the water coming up the bath and it would start to climb up or crawl up the sloping end of the bath and it would slide back down and climb up and slide back down until eventually it slid into the hot water and died. So that's what I decided to do <laughs> for my for my animal. Uh, was right. this spider sensing? And I, des- I remember describing um, what it was that was uh, happening uh, in the presentation. I described the the story of the spider in the bath. So I then did it and um, ended up sliding down and 
curling up or my arms and legs all curled, you know, scrunched up on my back. My um, report. Yes. Went, oh, the review, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. from Litz Pisk, who was the head of movement there. She looked at me and she said, it's a pity you didn't go down the plug hole. <laughs> so that was pretty much her way of saying, what a total waste of time. So then came yeah. the uh, end of uh, first year assessments. Oh. I remember sitting in the studio on a chair with a long table in front of me and all the staff sitting behind and George Hall, who was the uh, the director of the school, the head of head of uh, acting, looked at me and he said, "Well, we've only got one thing to say to you, mm-hmm. Bill. Who? <laughs> I used to be called Bill in those uh, yeah. days. Yes. And uh, I said, I'm sorry. He said, Well, just because you were an actor before you came here, you think you know." everything. Well, I can assure you, you know nothing. So we've decided you have a term to pull your finger out. Right. And so I started my second year and I pulled my finger out. Right. And um, I have to say I worked really, really hard. And interestingly enough, I mentioned uh, Litz Pisk, who was the head of movement, and uh, she was an extraordinary woman. She was an absolutely fantastic woman, and I really loved movement classes. Uh, I think partly because I mentioned earlier that uh, my my cousin, Avril, used to go to a dance school, and that's where this pantomime that I was in. I think I also secretly wanted to be a dancer or something. So the great thing about movement was that it allowed me to, uh, well, especially because we did as part of the course, we did a lot of we did a lot of period dancing, dances from like the uh, the twelfth century right the way up to um, the twentieth century. So there was something very satisfying about that. Anyway, I. Managed to get through the three years of um, of drama school, and um, I got a job um, pretty much straight away right. uh, when I left um, right. in a production of Othello at the Mermaid Theatre in London. And the director mm-hmm. of that production was an Australian called Peter Oyston, oh. and. Peter was, he was there directing that play, but he was also running a theatre in the north of England, which was about to have its new permanent home. It was, it was a, I think it was called the Century Theatre, and it was a travelling theatre uh, company. Uh-huh. And they were about to get their new home at the Duke's Playhouse in Lancaster, which was being built for them. Right. And... Um, Peter invited me to join the company and um, I joined the company as an actor. I was the movement coach, the choreographer, the fighter ranger uh, for the company. And I worked with Peter uh, and the Duke's Playhouse Company for four and a half years, something like that. Uh Um, And we had time out during that, that four and a half years. So, I managed to do a couple of plays 
outside of uh, Lancaster. Um, and during my last year working there, I became like an associate director as well. So I directed quite a few plays and helped devise a few things as well. And all of this time uh, working there, Peter used to talk, Peter Oyston used to talk about Australia a lot and um, how he was dying to get back to Australia. And eventually he got offered the job as the uh, inaugural um, Dean of Drama at the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne. Um, And he asked me if I'd be interested oh. in coming to Australia and head the movement section. Wow. Be the uh, head of movement. Wow. Yeah, and I said, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I mean, he <laughs> painted a pretty good picture of Australia, I have to say. And um, anyway, I applied for the job. I got interviewed by John Sumner, who used yes. to be the head of uh, the Melbourne Theatre Company. I got interviewed by him in England mm-hmm. uh, and Ron Danielson, who I think think was at Rusden State College. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, got interviewed and with Peter, uh, and sorry, there were two other people that um, Peter had been working with, John Beckett, who was um, technical, mm-hmm. and Chris Crooks, uh, who uh, was applying for the job of uh, an acting teacher. And with Peter basically saying to the board, here in uh, in Australia, look, I need to have some people that I know their work, yeah. I know how they work, mm-hmm. I know what their skills are and so on and so forth. So with him pushing and uh, our skill set, I guess we, the three of us got our jobs. So that's what brought me to Australia in 1976. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> When did you get that muscle? Was it in the student kind of repertory, the acting muscle that sounds like it's the thing that is the building blocks of, you know, sustaining a career, would you say? Well, look, um, part of the thing, uh, and I don't know what it's like in the UK now at all, I've got no idea, but when when I was starting out, I was in fortnightly rep, or three weekly rep. Uh, so we were doing a new play pretty much every two weeks or every three weeks. You know, there'd be a, a, a week between each of those periods where it was technical rehearsal, dress rehearsal, and so on. But over a period of a year, uh, I'd be doing, I'd be involved in eight uh, different plays, maybe 10 different plays. Um, so over a period of several years, the um, you're practicing your craft. You're practicing your craft several times, you know, eight times a week, um, several weeks in a, a year, uh, continuously, and working with fantastic people. You know, observing what they do. So you, yes, your acting muscle. You get you get to use it a lot, and it's certainly one of the things that I feel I feel really sorry for with uh, a lot of young actors now because certainly here in Australia it's like you leave drama school yeah and what have you got you know your chance of getting employed uh with the major theatre companies 
and I'm about to uh, get onto one of my hobby horses in just a moment. Um, your chance of getting employed with the uh, major theatre companies is really, really small. Yeah. That's why a lot of young actors form their own groups and they, you know, maybe try and put on a, a few plays and, you know, whether they survive or how long they survive uh, is anyone's guess, you know. Mm. But I think, as I said about going on to a hobby horse, one of the things that um, uh, I think is really, really shameful in this country is Mm. uh, the support for the arts from government. As we know, uh, the funding to companies has diminished incredibly. Most of the, the major companies, you know, have to get, sponsorship and you know people giving them money and so on and so forth to help make ends uh, meet now i remember the first time i was with uh, the sydney theater company i was in a production of the seagull many years ago now at that time the company had something like i think there were three plays going uh, at the same time there were Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to remember. There was the Madras House, the Seagull, and another play. And there were like 40-odd actors employed at one time. Now, when Kevin Rudd got in to be Prime Minister and he had his, um, what, 2007 big uh, meeting in Canberra with people from all different areas. I know Kate Blanchett represented, uh, you know, actors there and a lot of Mm. submissions were made. I submitted a paper via Kate called Make Theatre Affordable. Right. Because I had done a bit of research into the number of actors that were employed between, I think it was 1980 and 2007 and every single theatre company apart from one year when um, Robin Nevin got the money for the what's now the Ross Packer Theatre oh, yes. and they, yeah. they, they had the Actors Company that was the first time in 20 years where the number of actors employed increased between 1988 and 2007, the numbers with all of the major theatre companies of actors employed plummeted. So I also, I used to get really fed up with hearing, you know, comments about how elitist theatre is and, you know, opera and all of these things. And I'm thinking, well, yes, if you've got to spend you know, well, in those days, $60 to go and see a play and it's dull and boring, you're not going to be keen to go and see another one uh, anytime soon. Whereas if there's lots of funding, government funding, and, you know, it's uh, it only costs you $20 or $30 or let's say in today's terms, let's make it $40 maximum to go to the theatre and it's a dull play, then you're going to go, oh, well, never mind. Next one will be better, you know. Anyway, so that was my big thing about um, increasing 
funding to the arts generally. And uh, I think it's absolutely shameful. And, and that kind of divide that that does, if there's not very many plays on, then there's more expectation and then there's... Uh, whereas if you've got more people doing doing it and there's more chance to get better and to grow, but also more competition, so you do better... Well, I don't know, it just builds it rather than closing it down in on itself. What, what do you think, like, in terms of government funding and, and the importance of the stage and, I guess, the stories that are told in your terms, like, I, I guess, the language of the stage and what it does for our, us culturally? Yeah, no, I mean, the thing is, uh, Regina, I think, you know, it's like not every play is a brilliant play. Yeah, you know, uh, and there is there is such a thing as the value of entertainment, but even within even within you know mediocre plays, they are stories that are reflecting human existence, you know, aspects of human existence. Now, whether that's uh, you know whether you're looking at uh, Shakespeare or classical Greek, ancient Greek plays, or absolutely modern stuff. What you've got is you've got stories about humanity and even mediocre plays will have elements within them where you recognise yourself or people you know or a question about society. And this is, I mean, for me, this is, you know, why theatre is an essential part of our life. And I, I mean, I could say the same with film and, and TV uh, as well. It's about reflecting us. And one of the things, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, governments, uh, our governments, aren't keen mm. to support the arts, is that reflection that the more we see things on stage or on screen that show not only, you know, the, the, the good side, but the, the question, the bad side of our existence, the more governments are rattled by it. Whereas sport, it's like sports there, you, you know, you're there in the match uh, watching your footy or watching your tennis or your cricket you're there, you're lost in the moment, you don't think about any of the problems with society or anything. Whereas you go to the theatre and you watch a play that makes you go, oh, yeah, wow, yeah, that's pretty mean, isn't it? Or that's nasty. Or Is this the society we're living in? Questioning. Yeah. It's the same across all of the arts, you know. And, of course, not everything that is created is magnificent or brilliant. You know, but that's the way it is. I mean, we could say, well, not every bloody government is brilliant either. Not every policy that they come up with actually is brilliant, as we are experiencing at the moment, you know. Anyway, that's just me rambling on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is necessary to see ourselves reflected back, and I think it's underestimated the the power of that, you know, identity forming as a as a nation as well as an individual i, I feel like you, you should do a, a, a if not a book a stage version of your life in some ways what because i want to see the, also the spider reenacted on stage what why because i don't think of you as a, a musical 
or like why and why not dance like why do you think you taught movement a lot and maybe you could talk a little bit about how important that is on the stage because I think we forget that power of of movement in the performer because it can be caught up in the words or the text or movement around the stage but yeah the physicality of the performer well I mean the essence really of uh, of what movement training is about there's several aspects right one is uh, actually just making your body um, fit and healthy for acting because it can be pretty rigorous you know Mm. it can be quite athletic and you know require a lot of physical control knowing how to relax for example knowing how to breathe properly so there's the fitness aspect of it but the other aspect is to do with so i mentioned uh you know like we used to go to the zoo to study animal movement and one of the things that was really interesting with uh, what Litz used to say about it was that it's you're not going there to just mimic how an animal moves. Oh. You go to the zoo to look into the eyes and know and understand the essence of that animal that you're studying. So movement training includes an understanding of the connection between what you feel and how it's expressed physically. Now, one of the things that I talk about when occasionally I do uh, do a workshop still, we know, for example, if we are, let's say we're, um, you know, excited by something or, or worried by something, it has an effect on our bodies, you know. So if we're, um, you know, if, if we're in falling in love with somebody, we're feeling light, we're feeling, um, you know, it's like uh, everything is sort of buzzing almost. If you're f- very anxious about, an interview or something like that, you might find your shoulders are getting tight. Everything, you know, is, is closing in on you. Part of the wonderful thing of movement training is you actually realize if you create those physical sensations, mm. you can create the emotional state. Oh. In everyday life, uh, we experience something, it affects our mood, that affects our body. As an actor, you can make your body affect your mood, which is the mood needed in this particular scene uh, in the play or in the film or whatever. It's like learning to be able to create an inner life by using the external aspect, i.e. the muscular and skeletal frame that you as an actor uh, are carrying. Does that make sense? Totally, yes. Indeed, and all those kind of movements of the the laughing groups are kind of testament to that sort of um, reverse reverse emotional treatment, I suppose. And, yeah. and I wondered about the kind of roles that you've played when I was looking around because I've never actually looked you up. <laughs> I've met you a number of times, but there's there's one little I don't know section. It says the trademark roles that William Zappa plays are villains. No, no. <laughs> the short answer. No, I, I, look, I, I think that's. I think it's that's, just funny. Yeah, no, no, but it's also. I 
think if I remember where that quote comes from, they refer to the scars on my face. Mm, yeah. When I was 18 months old, I got mauled by the family dog <gasps> and I ended up with these scars on my left cheek. And I've, you know, I've done, I, oh, gee, I don't think I've done that many bad characters. <laughs> <laughs> Are they the best kind? Are they the best kind to play? Pretty much every actor would say they much prefer playing the villain <laughs> yeah. than um, the good guy. I just like playing complex people. So what are some of your favourites or what have you enjoyed? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Willie Loman, Mm. uh, which I did in Adelaide a few years ago. Truly one of the absolute greatest roles ever written for a man, you know, a Mm. phenomenal role. Also in uh, David Hare's Skylight, an absolutely extreme. In fact, I wrote to, to David Hare after playing the role, um, sort of thanking him for writing so concisely and precisely the uh, the dilemmas of that man, of a man. Do you think you understand yourself better as as a consequence of being an actor? I hope so. I think one of the things that I I was going to say one of the things that I get great pleasure from, and I don't know if that's actually the right, the right phrase, but one of the things that I have done for many, many years is try to understand who I am. What, what are the events in my life that have brought me to this point? And when I say brought me to this point, I mean in terms of why do I think the way I think? Why do I make the choices that I make? And I I really love that. And, you know, when you're studying a role, you're looking for all of the clues that are there in the play um, or the script, the the clues that are are given um, by other characters about your character, what your character says about themselves, so it's for me, it's not unusual to be doing that with my own life, to be looking at it and trying to understand all of the little, the little events, you know, what was the impact on my life, what has been the impact, what continues to be the impact on my life of my mother leaving me at the age of eight or eight and a half. What is the impact of my mother and I reconnecting and loving each other deeply, deeply right the way up until when she died just before Christmas. So all of these things, you know, uh, what was the impact of me um, becoming a Christian for a brief time? What was the impact of becoming a Buddhist for a, a period? All of these things, I love to look at them without being critical, I, and what I mean is without saying, oh, that was good, that was bad, but just saying, ah, right, I see, that was that, that's how that happened, that leads to this. Yeah, I just, you know, I. oh, God, it sounds as if I'm self-obsessed, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I just find it really, really wonderful to um, to try and understand oneself. I think it's important to understand oneself. 
You're a poet as well, William. And you would took your hand to one of the epics. What what drew you to uh, a dark time is it Iliad? Was it a return home for you in in some ways, in a metaphorical way? Um no, look, it was quite interesting, Regina. I got invited to uh, Melbourne to do a workshop on ancient Greek plays. Marion Potts was oh, yes. director at, um, at Malthouse at the time. And um, she invited me down there to join a group of actors uh, looking at ancient Greek plays. And at the end, and they were just looking at themes and ideas and stuff like that. And at the end of the week, um, one of the actors read a passage from the Robert Fagel's translation. I can't remember what passage it was, and I'd never read the Iliad. And I just remember sitting there thinking, oh, what an amazing story or what an amazing piece. I went straight out uh, after we, the rehearsals finished uh, or the readings finished. I went straight out and bought a copy. And um, I just thought this is, this is just so amazing. This is so incredible. Um, it's got to be a radio play. <laughs> so <laughs> I, start, I applied to uh, ABC Radio National yes. for funding to explore the potential of a radio play. Mm. Um, and uh, they said yes. Yay. And no sooner had they said yes and I had started work on it, then um, Radio National Drama all got cancelled. Oh, so yeah. that all fell in a heap. But I, by this time, I, had, you know, I was sort of quite addicted to the piece. And uh, I decided that um, I would continue. But instead of just using the Robert Fagel's translation, I was now going to create my own. And I'm not a speaker of ancient Greek. I hardly speak modern Greek either, but uh, <laughs> what I decided to do was to get as many copies of the Iliad as I could. Wow. And um, put it into my own words. How many was that? Uh, 17. 17. 17 copies. Of those 17, there were probably seven that were like they were open on my, you know, on my desk the whole time. The others were on my computer, right. uh, on Kindle or something like that, you know, and I'd refer to them yeah, fairly regularly if there was a passage that I just thought I don't quite get. I also wanted to try and create something that all of the, all of the translators rave about with Homer, and that is his rhythm mm. they talk about the uh, it's called dactylic hexameter basically the rhythm is like and so on and so forth but all of the translators also say that it's impossible to do justice to the poem in english right. in dactylic hexameter it's just not the way we talk mm -hmm. however the way we do talk is iambic yeah. which is the um, the rhythm of Shakespeare, for example. Yeah. It was pretty much an eight-year-long process yeah. by the time I finished the the whole of the Iliad. So what now? The Odyssey? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I actually, I, I've got to start thinking about it, I have to say, but I, I have just finished. I got asked to write some verses 
It's a thing called the Aphrodite Project. One of the sponsors of the Iliad asked me to uh, consider writing some words for a song cycle. So I have just recently finished that. Mm-hmm. And yes, called the Aphrodite Project. And uh, the uh, American composer, Nico Muli, is um, has been commissioned to write the music. So hopefully sometime next year that will be done and uh, it'll hopefully get performed as well. Fingers crossed. Well, William, thank you so much for talking with me. We look forward to um, Aphrodite. Yeah, yeah, or the Odyssey. Or the the Odyssey, whatever comes first. 